Welcome to session 51 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you start this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 20th of February. Today we'll be looking at Numbers 33 to 34 and Psalm 51. But so far in Numbers, we've read as the Israelites made the final preparations to leave Sinai, the journey to the Promised Land, the stop in the wilderness of Paran where the people rebelled and decided not to enter the land, the journey in the wilderness as we waited for the old generation to pass and then the Israelites settling in the plains of Moab. We read through all the preparations and new instructions that seemed like random rules, but were actually a retelling of Genesis 1 to 9. Israel was to be like a new creation, learning from the mistakes of the first time around. We then read as Israel set off, established and ordered by God, only to immediately complain. Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, challenged whether Moses was really hearing from God. After that, the Israelites arrived in the wilderness of Paran, just outside Canaan. Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land, and 10 of the 12 complained that the land was filled with descendants of the Nephilim and that they had no chance. God then tells them that none of this generation will enter the promised land. This was followed by the Levites rebelling under Korah. And so the people set off back into the wilderness to continue to be tested by God until the old generation passed. The people complained and Moses this time rebelled a little, losing his spot in the promised land. They fought some battles and complained some more, and more of the old generation died. In winning some battles, the Israelites also claimed some land. We read as they settled in the plains of Moab. There they were seen by Balak, the king of Moab, who hired a foreign sorcerer, Balaam, to curse Israel. But God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel, and instead Balaam blessed Israel three times and then cursed all their enemies. We then settled into the final section of Numbers as the new generation are preparing to enter the land. Phineas proved himself a worthy successor to Aaron and Joshua is chosen to replace Moses when the time comes. The new generation were given instructions on offerings and vows. They were also charged with wiping out the Midianites. In doing so, they claimed the land, which led to two and a half of the tribes, seeing the land was good and wanting to take it for themselves rather than enter Canaan. So let's jump in with today's reading, Numbers 33 to 34. We jump straight in with a recap of the journeys Israel had taken over the last 40 years, from Egypt to the River Jordan. This recap comes as a signal we are at the end of this wilderness journey. Now through the rest of Numbers and Deuteronomy, we're going to get instructions on how to live in Canaan. Then in Joshua, the people are going to enter and lay claim to it. The people also needed reminding of where they have come from and had to have it recorded for future generations. It wasn't that the Israelites were a nomadic people that wandered around the wilderness where they could find water and grass for their livestock. They were a people led by God and taken care of by God. On top of this, this list is structured in the same way as similar lists dictating the victorious campaigns of pharaohs, such as Tutmosis III, Seti I and Ramses II. In these lists, it would depict each town and village that the pharaoh conquered in their campaign so people could see the extent of their victory as well as the exact journey they went on. In the same way, we're meant to see this list as part of a campaign that God is bringing the Israelites on. They didn't fight battles at every one of these locations, but it is all part of God's plan and purpose to lead the Israelites to victory over Canaan. We then get a reminder to drive the people out of the land as they enter it. This is the next leg of the campaign for the Israelites. In going into the land, they are to go in and remove any element of the corruption that had tainted the land. That included the people, but also their altars and idols. In this, there's also a warning. If the Israelites fail to do this, 
then what they leave behind will corrupt and impact them. They will be like thorns in their sides, slowly contaminating them. And eventually they will reach a point where they're so corrupted, they will need removing from the land, just as the Canaanites have been. From what we've seen so far of the Israelites, we're to assume that this warning is actually foreshadowing. That's exactly what's going to happen. Having been told to remove the people from the land, the Israelites now need to know what the boundaries of that land is. We get some very specific boundary lines for the land. What's interesting is we don't get the specific boundary lines for each tribe. Those will come later. For now, we get a list of the names of the people who will be in charge of dividing up the lands once they have claimed it. But that's Numbers 33 to 34. And now let's look at Psalm 51. This psalm is attributed to King David, famously after the prophet Nathan challenged him on killing Uriah and sleeping with his wife Bathsheba. Have a look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It falls into the category of lament, specifically personal repentance. The psalm is made up of two chiasms, passages that reflect themselves. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. In Psalm 51 verse 1 to 2, we have a prayer for forgiveness. In verses 3 to 6, we have the confession of sin. Verses 7 to 12, we have prayer for renewal and restoration. Verses 13 to 17, commitment to declare God's praises. And then verses 18 to 19, prayer for Zion. The psalmist starts of turning to God and inviting him to have mercy. They remind God of who he is. He's a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. The issue, the psalmist needs cleansing of their sin. And so the psalmist takes a moment to acknowledge all their sin. They recognise that at its core, all sin is against God. And therefore, God is the only one who gets to determine what is sin. The psalmist has done what is evil in God's sight. In the moment, it might have seemed good in the psalmist's sight, but it was still sin. The psalmist also recognises that there's been part of him that was always drawn to sin ever since he was born. Because of this, they need to be taught from the inside out how to live right. Next comes the request for cleansing and restoration. The psalmist specifically mentions cleansing with hyssop which is what was used for cleansing diseases back in Leviticus 14. Their sin is like a disease in them that will continue to corrupt and destroy if not dealt with. They need to be blotted out. Again, the psalmist recognises their need for a new heart and the way they achieve that? Access to God's presence and spirit. It's these things that renew the psalmist from the inside out and so the psalmist asks that God not remove them from him. Having moved from confession to request, the psalmist now makes a commitment as long as God doesn't abandon him. He will lead others to God. He will sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. In this, the psalmist recognises that God doesn't want empty sacrifices. God wants a heart that's committed and faithful to him. The psalm then takes a strange turn, praying for Zion, Jerusalem. It may be that these last two verses were added later after Jerusalem was sacked and the people taken into exile. In this then, there's an understanding that Jerusalem's fall was caused by the same thing that the psalmist is wrestling with. Corrupted hearts that led people to sin, that couldn't be fixed with sacrifices and offerings, but need the spirit of God to come in, give them new, clean hearts. If the people of Jerusalem can appeal to God, just as the psalmist is going to, then God will do good to the city and restore it.